Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Uno, dos. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro.
Supremacy, Gusty Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, July 7th, 2017. So I have been told this is our fifth study session on Gil Scott Heron's autobiography, The Last Holiday. Uh, the song you heard at the beginning, The Bottle. Uh, I think that song has been mentioned already uh, a few times in the text. Uh, thus far, and I think it's going to be mentioned a few times again uh, today as we proceed. Uh, we'll get more information on the development of his com- uh, music career, his writing career, uh, thoughts on racism uh, as we proceed. We're still pretty heavy uh, in the 1970s uh, uh, when a lot of the turbulence uh, from that era uh, was going on. Uh, without further ado, we will go ahead and get started. Picking up this week on Chapter 23. Context of White Supremacy, Gil Scott Heron, The Last Holiday, audio segment number one. 23. Winter in America came out in 1974, and the single, The Bottle, became a hit for us. The impression people seemed to get of me from my songs was of some wild-haired, wild-eyed motherfucker. Once again, I felt people who wrote about me and Brian should have looked at all that we did. It was pretty obvious that there was an entire black experience and that it didn't relate only to protest. We dealt with all the streets that went through the black community and not all of those streets were protesting. By the mid-1970s, the black middle-class people who were just in the movement for the adventure of the moment had gone on to do whatever it was that middle-class people did. There were still a whole lot of programs in the community that could be effective, but a lot of the people who were aiming their heads toward that when they were in college 
weren't there anymore. They'd been kidnapped by Exxon. Surviving became the ideal after a while. A whole lot of people got killed, betrayed, or put in jail for talking about helping the community. Most of the times when people pulled me off to the side at concerts, the song they wanted to discuss didn't have anything to do with politics, even though those songs were the ones that were most explicit. People wanted to say something about Your Daddy Loves You because it seemed to them that we'd written it about them. The songs that people wanted to talk about were the ones that were more personal than political, more private than public, more of an emotion than an issue. Still, there shouldn't have been any confusion in people's minds about whether or not they were in a fight. All they had to do was to look in their pocketbooks. Somebody done took their motherfucking money. When we get into things that related to politics, a lot of the time people would say, man, I'm just interested in cash. And if I had to hit people to the fact that if they were interested in money, that was the best reason to get into politics. There was a war going on in this country and you tried to find your best weapon. I've always looked at myself as a piano player from Tennessee. I play some piano and write some songs. The fact that I've had some political influence is all well and good, but I never considered myself a politician. I never joined any of the political organizations because once you joined one, it made you enemies in another. Various groups argued back and forth and wasted energy that could have been used to try to do something for the community, which is why I stayed out of most organizations. I wanted to be available to all of them. I played for Shirley Chisholm. I played for Ken Gibson. I played the Nation of Islam's Savior's Day celebration. I played for anybody who was trying to do something positive for black people. Just count me in and I'd be there. One special performance at Ed Murphy's Supper Club came up in February 1975 for half a year. WHUR, Howard University's radio station, had been broadcasting updates about the case of Joan Little, a sister who in August 1974 had stabbed a prison guard who had tried to rape her in a North Carolina jail. Practically the whole black population of D.C., was tuned in to WHUR and its news department kept its finger on the pulse of the community. The little case was a focus of national attention in black papers and magazines. One night, I happened to be sitting at a friend's place with Chris Williams, who had closed his club, the Coral Reef, and was looking for a better location for a new one, and Petey Green one of the true legends of Washington Street and who had been released from jail and was telling it like it was with his own radio talk show. An update on the little case came over the radio and Chris said that if he still had his club, he would throw a party and donate the money 
for the sister's defense fund. Petey agreed. That idea hit us to talk to Ed, and I said I'd have my group play the date if Ed got involved. Sure enough, things quickly got organized. Ed agreed to donate the venue, and we got in contact with WHUR to spread the word. But late January and early February is when Washington gets its harshest weather. The night before the benefit, a snowstorm hit the district and continued through the next morning, forcing us to delay the show until the next night. I had to hastily reorganize things for various members of the Midnight Band whose flights in from New York and Boston had been canceled. The next night, the crowd came tiptoeing carefully through lanes cleared through accumulated snow plowed to the sides of Georgia Avenue. The supper club was not a huge place, but some of my favorite places to play were smaller, more intimate venues like Ed's or Blues Alley in D.C., Al Williams' Birdland West in Long Beach, SOB's on Varick Street in New York, and First Avenue, the Minneapolis club Prince later made famous. We played two sets, and at the end of a successful evening, we stood in small clusters of five and six, while Ed and the host shuffled through the cash, deducting the expenses for the service staff and cleanup crew. They finally emerged, reporting a clear profit of $2,300 for the defense of Miss Little. Something real good happened then. Two hustlers, street brothers, who will remain nameless, though they were recognized and answered to fairly descriptive names, came out of their huddle briefly. Each of them had a $100 bill in his hand. Make it a straight up 2500 one of them growled as though raising the bet at a poker table. Ed took the bills they offered and called for the bartender to pour them another as they put their heads together again in their corner. There were a lot of things that a lot of diverse people had in common in those days. Russell Means, who was the head of the American Indian movement, had a lot in common with Joan Little, who had a lot in common with Inez Garcia, who had a lot in common with the San Quentin Six. All of them were symbols of how America needed to change, but had not. The reality, of course, was that the people were not helpless or defenseless or without the means to effect change. It was just that nobody was going to do everything. We were trying to say to brothers and sisters, let's pool our energies and talents and try to get all of this here instead of the little bit you might be able to get on the corner. I was trying to get people who listened to me to realize that they were not alone and that certain things were possible. 24. I had continued teaching through the end of 1974, but Brian and I had started working on a new album to follow up Winter in America. 
and we played a lot of live shows. Dan Henderson invited Clive Davis to come to a show at the Beacon Theater in New York City. We'd heard that Clive was starting a new company called Arista. What we didn't know was that Clive was already scouting us for the label. Turned out he really dug the bottle. I had never met the man until he walked into the Beacon. Dan was just salivating and nervous. He was like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs, and the guys in the band were all talking about it before Clive's arrival. You had to know Dan to know how unusual it was for him to be excited or nervous, anything except extremely fucking cool. Clive showed up at the beacon and saw what we did and how we did it. Physically, he was not imposing. But there was definitely a power there, a magnetic shimmer. He was an Aries, and maybe it was nothing more than an extra luster to the aura of the fire at his core. In reality, I don't know what it was. Maybe he only seemed to have that something to me because his history preceded him and caused the curious like me to look for it but it was there when he mixed with other people and the world he looked different from bob thiel whose wardrobe was casual without looking hippie or bohemian jacket but no tie cords not jeans clive davis was always dressed and pressed tailor-made expensive materials understated but obvious at the same time, and even after hours, he dressed nine to five. Also, unlike Bob Thiel, whom everyone called Bob, Clive was always Mr. Davis. I think Clive had already made up his mind because talks progressed quickly after the show. The music trade papers made a big deal of the fact that we were the first act signed to Arista because they were all waiting to see what Clive would do when he got back into the business. But I don't think it was too significant. We were available and we had been working on new material. Graduating from Flying Dutchman to Arista meant an elevation to another level of visibility. I went to a couple of concerts with Clive during the next few months. Very early on in our relationship, he took me to see Elton John at Madison Square Garden. I think he was trying to show me what he saw me doing without making that speech. The first time I went to his office, it was still down at 1776 Broadway and posters of Tony Orlando and Al Wilson, remaining traces of his previous label, were still on the wall. He had his feet up on the desk, talking freely about the future of his new company. By the next time I visited him, he was up at 6 West 57th Street, a street as closely associated with the music business as Madison Avenue was with advertising. Clive's new offices occupied an entire building as far as I could tell, and they were also fully staffed with all the clamor of a big city newsroom, 
bright as daylight with fluorescent tubes running the length of the pathways between cubicles. Clive was still at ease. I was the de facto leader of the Midnight Band, but that was a longer way than anyone seemed to understand from 57th Street. The band members felt I had talked my way into publishing houses with my manuscript. I had talked my way into Flying Dutchman and a record deal, and I had talked on my first record. I had talked my way into John Hopkins and a master's degree. As far as they were concerned, all I needed was someone's attention for a few minutes, and I would talk them into anything. While I appreciated their confidence, I felt it was misplaced. My most outstanding liability was that I was naive. In my life, I was appreciated for my honesty. However, in the record business, I was finding that honesty was a missing component. On the 57th Street, which was supposed to be the new launching pad for my career and for the Midnight Band, I came to see how most artists were viewed. Expendable, easily replaced by others. At the Arista office, I could hear and feel that I was around music people. They liked music and gave you a feeling about what their homes and lives were like. At other places, like the Copyright Services Bureau, an office full of entertainment lawyers Clive approved of, the atmosphere was totally different. With the click-clack of typewriters and the hum of copier machines, all those lawyers and managers and accountants were as thoroughly plugged into the music business as the aorta is to the heart, but with a cynicism and a disdain that made me think at times that they didn't care for either singers or music. On 57th Street, they could see money coming. See it the way a trainer can see a colt's time for one and a quarter miles when it first puts its weight on legs as wobbly as wet straws. Smell it the way farmers can smell rain that's still two days in the distance. Feel it the way a grandma can feel the same rain from an equal distance in the marrow of her bones and even taste it the way standing outside a bakery makes your mouth water. If you were part of a record company on 57th Street, you were on the money, part of the bedrock of the biz, or at least you were eligible. This was the inside of the inside. I didn't feel like a part of a profession, not one that mattered to the busy folks with briefcases banging their knees and thighs as they half-walked, half-trotted everywhere they went. It wasn't just that I was black, though that was never far from my consciousness. I felt like an undercover man who had shown up without his cover. Even anesthetized by good Colombian weed, I felt tense and out of place, and it was because I really was. I wasn't unfamiliar with New York, just this part of New York 
Midtown. I had a house in Virginia, roughly 300 miles south of 57th Street. In Virginia, I could think. I could sit in the yard with a glass of tea and a book in the afternoon. In Virginia, I could continue to write the songs and poems that people enjoyed and made me happy. But whether I liked it or not, I began to have to spend more time on West 57th Street. More than a certainty that I had the business expertise to direct our group, the band members figured I was the only one who really had the time. After all was said and done, I was the one who essentially had no life. The New York guys, Adenola, Bilal, Sonny Ali, and Cosmic Charlie all had families and other vocations. There had never been any commitment on their part to full-time pursuit of positions in the record business. They all loved to play music. They made as many concessions as they could to band rehearsals, making the gigs, and teaching us all what the rhythms meant and how they could be used to help us say things. Victor Brown lived and worked in Boston. Brian, Doc, Danny, and Bob Adams lived and maintained their lives in and around D.C. They were all intelligent, with degrees and other professional expertise, where college degrees would not benefit you, but none of them had either the interest, the expertise, or the independent image separate from their contribution to the group to be recognized as a spokesperson for all of us, especially to speak for me. Arista started releasing records on January 1st, 1975, and brought out our album, The First Minute of a New Day, on January 15, 1975, making it the first minute of a new day for Glive Davis, too. I had to take a leave of absence from Federal City College, which eventually became permanent. What I had once dreamed about, contributing to the Midnight Band when I could free myself from my teaching and writing, was impossible. I had mixed feelings about leaving the place just as it was combining with D.C. teachers and the Washington School of Technology to become the University of D.C. But the problem was success. The first minute of a new day hit the charts and remained on them for weeks and months. While our new lawyers at the Copyright Services Bureau negotiated a deal for me to do a movie score not long after the release of the album, I was back in New York staying at the Salisbury Hotel. After a day of trying to satisfy the brilliant choreographer George Faison with rhythm for a proposed dance number, I stumbled back to the hotel and almost had a heart attack. I had already turned the key to let myself into the room when I realized several things. One, someone had been in my room. Two, someone had been smoking marijuana. And three, they were still there. I felt like a cheap, 
condensed version of The Three Bears, some production that could only afford one bear. I wasn't in much of a mood for figuring shit out, but I figured that if they were spirits, I could negotiate with them because they smoked reefer. It did cross my mind that I had left some excellent reefer in a shoebox under my bed, but no matter. These had to be some damn bold thieves to come in my room and just roll up their sleeves, and probably some of my Colombian weed, and not even have the decency to leave. I decided it was either Manny Lopez or Norris Little, the head of Charisma, because whoever it was had to have heard me turn the key in the lock and heard me come in and there hadn't been any response. So I turned the corner into the main part of my living quarters where four dread brothers were busy with a great quantity of reefer on a newspaper in the middle of the floor. They barely noticed me come in. One of them, the one I recognized, was Bob Marley. The dread brothers were fairly cordial. Truth was, they didn't know whose room it was, or that it was the room of one particular person. Nor did they particularly care. They had been out in Central Park playing soccer until their package arrived and were offered the key to this hotel room until their rooms were ready. I had the impression that I could join them if I wanted to and would be welcome to share a little herb, but that was all. I never got the impression that they gave a damn that it was my room. And they probably shouldn't have. After all, wouldn't I have said, make yourselves at home? And hadn't they? Was there a rule that said they had to ask first? Did it matter which order the making yourself at home thing had to follow? Evidently not. I did notice a nasty looking gash on Bob's toe, however, and spoke on it. Seems like you need to do something about that toe, my man. I just kind of threw that out there as the first wave of making yourself at home crept into my attitude. The doctor gave him something. One of the brothers offered around a joint as thick as a sausage. But him old head too hard to use, I'm what it got. Bob was sprawled across the floor, propped on one elbow. He waved his man off. Jahil, he assured me. Ja put thing for healing. Ja might have put that doctor here for healing, I offered. Ja's gotta be mighty busy. Jahil was Bob's last comment on the subject. And for whatever reason, my mind works the way it does because I found myself looking at their soccer ball and thinking, he takes a licking and keeps on ticking. And then my mind moved on. 25. Less than a year after Clive had decided to start the label, 
Arista was the fifth biggest music company in the world. So in September 1975, the Midnight Band played two shows at Madison Square Garden as part of a celebration of the label's successful first year of operations. It was as if Clive had decided to let New York celebrate his anniversary. To cover the whole day, he planned one show in the afternoon and one show at night. I used to minimize the importance of playing at Madison Square Garden and swear that it was no big deal. It was a big deal. I was forced to face that long before I stepped into the place as a piano playing band leader. The first time had been as a basketball player in my last year at Fieldston. What I most remembered about that season was that we should have been conference champions but we weren't. I had never been sure who arranged for Fieldston to play against Collegiate, one of our conference rivals in the earliest of three games that started at about five o'clock. There was an NBA doubleheader afterward with Detroit against somebody in the first game and the New York Knickerbockers playing against somebody else in the second game. I would be there late. I think we lost the game. I know I had one of my worst games fumbling and juggling my way up and down in near Arctic cold, trying to dribble around a few dozen dead spots hiding among the loose floorboards like spiders in the corners of an old house. The cold seemed to wrap around my legs and ankles like a frozen blanket compliments of the ice beneath the boards that the New York Rangers skated across during hockey games. That experience raised my level of respect for professional basketball players and hockey players since I figured the skating surface was probably in no better shape than the basketball court. Madison Square Garden was not a great concert venue either. I used to say as part of my evaluation of the garden that when you played there you sounded like the Knicks. That wisecrack ignored the fact that New York had some of the best sound technicians and concert producers in the world. And not only were they the most proficient, they were almost always that way in a New York minute because that's how long it took them to change sets between acts and get your sound in house order. A New York Minute. For some reason that Clive Davis kept to himself, I was back with the jazz artists and putting on during the afternoon slate of the Arista celebration. To tell the truth, since Clive had come to see us after hearing the bottle and shown interest in Ain't No Such Thing as Superman, I had not known where we would play, but I had anticipated it would be whenever Clive expected people who had danced to the bottle would be in attendance. That was the song we'd been asked to play on a TV special a few months before, which had also been a celebration of Arista artists. But Brian and I had also played with Ron Carter and Hubert Laws at Flying Dutchman and in spite 
of split airplay that made us jazz in certain industry circles. So we were lined up to play on the program with Anthony Braxton and Oliver Lake and other innovative Arista artists. No problem. There had been no real question that I was being presented for my literary background when Small Talk at 125th and Lenox was released. The fact that I was back in classes at Lincoln and had written a novel and a book of poetry was emphasized. The Small Talk liner notes were taken from a conversation I had with Nat Hentoff, a sensitive man with both literary and music credentials. And the first media appearances I made were with Father O'Connor, the jazz priest on WRVR-FM and on a radio show hosted by Mr. Ozzie Davis with Miss Ruby D, featuring a conversation about writing novels with John A. Williams and John Oliver Killens. The small success of the poetry album and the larger audience of the album of songs, Pieces of a Man, brought critics and largely critical journalists back to me with who are you type questions. How do you see yourself, for instance, or are you jazz or poet or singer or I had started looking for them to ask vegetable or mineral. Every answer that I tried to supply inspired more questions. My problem was that I had thought when I finished the album, it would be their job to say what it was and, if necessary, what I was. As I started doing more press as a result of working with Arista, it became obvious that I hadn't taken a long view of how I would handle these types of questions. They started coming with an attitude. Who do you think you are? And they weren't going for just a piano player from Tennessee. But I admired Langston Hughes, a man who set no limits on himself. And I didn't want to get stuck doing one thing either. One of the things that was evident to me way back when I'd gotten into John Coltrane's music was that you had to keep reaching. I think when you stop reaching, you die. It's like Earl Weaver, the longtime manager of the Baltimore Orioles, once said, It's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. After you think you have accomplished something, there's a tendency to relax. There's always a need for you to feel there's something else you need to do. Something else you need to grasp. The night of the Arista celebration at the Garden, we played again, this time with the more pop program. I could claim that Clive thought the Midnight Band was like New York, New York, so nice he had to let us play twice. But that wouldn't be quite accurate. After the first show with the jazz artists, Clive's right-hand man caught up with us in front of the venue and told us that Eric Carmen's truck had turned over on the New Jersey Turnpike and that Clive needed us to play again. 
when we walked back in later that night, this time without a stage diagram or a sound check, the union sound man pulled me over and said, Hey Gil, have we got the same stage set up? When I nodded, he walked away. And when we came out to play after one of those 10 minute set changes, the lights were correct, the equipment was on spot, and the house sound and monitors were in sync from the first note. A New York piece of business. 26. I have never been very fond of doing interviews. I suppose that has been apparent to some of the people who have interviewed me. The only reason I'm using qualifying words like very is because there were some interviews that were actually fun to do and I did enjoy them. I have always enjoyed talking to Brother Imhotep aka Gary Bird no matter what radio station or TV show he was working for. Why? Because it was always live and not fake. What do I mean by fake? Easy. Sheets of paper and notebooks full of questions that always make me feel like this person isn't really familiar with my music, doesn't put my records on the box, doesn't read my books, and couldn't pick me out of a lineup without a cheap photo they looked at before they looked through the one-way mirror. I was not comfortable when the questions were prepared. If the questions were coming from a list and there was nothing live going on, the interviewer might as well mail me the list of questions and let me mail it back. When the interviewer had a tape recorder, I felt like I needed to have one too. Just because there had been so many little things that I read back in magazines that were just flat out wrong. I hadn't gotten any ugly vibes from the guy or the woman during the interview. A lot of the time what I said just got lost in transcription. It was not enough for the transcribers to have ears like an eagle. They needed ears like a heron and a sense of humor like a heron too because that's where most of the distortions and missed portions took place. Not only do I have a voice with a low end that rumbles along like a subway car with a flat wheel, the way I combine English with American street and slang and all them whatevers disoriented transcribers and I guess they were tilted so often they just settled for what it sounded like. It's not like I was deliberately throwing the transcribers off track. Hell. I wasn't talking to them. I didn't know them. I didn't even know they were listening. The only person I was talking to or thought I was talking to were the people doing the interviews. If they didn't say what or what did you say? I had to believe I'd been understood. For somebody in the recording business, I had very little faith in some of those little cute-ass tape recorders sitting on a table. I'll tell you something else. Here's a word to remember, especially about cassettes. Calibration. I had another show at the Beacon Theater with Grover Washington, and my regular bass player couldn't make it. 
but he was rooming with a friend of his in D.C. who also played bass. That friend told me he knew my songs, said he'd been listening to my stuff for two weeks practicing. So I said, okay, great. He meets us in New York and every tune is a fucking disaster. Every tune. He was playing everything about a note and a half higher than we were. It was because of calibration. Cassettes played higher. In fact, they played even faster when plugged into the wall than when played with batteries. The truth about interviews? Unless they're done live, it's just damn hard to trust them. Plus, when you were on the radio with Imhotep, you got to talk to people who called in with questions. That was always fun. I swear, that's how it was with me. I started to want my records to be live too. I had some good things from the studio, but looking back, I love things like It's Your World, recorded in Boston on July 4th, 1976, and Tales of Amnesia Express, recorded live in Europe. I did interviews live on foreign TV shows too. The first was a French show. It was like roller skating through a minefield with a blindfold on. I wore a hearing aid and took my seat at a table with the other guests after we played our song. The host asked me a question in French. The interpreter told me the question in English through the hearing aid. I answered the question in English and a French translation of the answer was broadcast to the studio audience. It was a strange experience. Shows were very different in different countries. The shows we did in England were on the BBC without commercials. I performed in front of a studio audience in a room that felt like a warehouse or an airplane hangar. In Germany, we performed on a show called One Filter, which means without a filter, live. All the groups that were going to be on the show set up in this large studio on separate stages, four or five groups, and the cameras and crew went around from band to band. There was a live TV show in Barcelona, Spain that was really wild. It was a combination of talk and performances, and it was broadcast live. We had a dress rehearsal during the day, and I was damn sure the show wasn't going to work. The whole thing was like a dyslexic fire drill. We went through all three of the tunes we were going to play, and I saw cameras swinging past on cranes and other cameramen with handhelds walk through, never stopping, and leave. When we finished the rehearsal, the director said, Thank you, Gil. That was great. I said, De nada, amigo. To myself, I was thinking, This is crazy. But they weren't crazy, and I hadn't seen nothing yet. They were professionals who did the show every week and knew exactly what they were doing. They also knew something about this evening's show that I didn't know. They were presenting another group on that night's slate, a dance group whose leading dancer and spokesperson was a transsexual. The group came on right before us and we watched her numbers from a balcony box. The most interesting piece 
was a choreographed number where each verse ended with a double bump and the leader's breasts hopped out of her outfit on the last beat every time and the studio audience roared every time obviously there was nothing we could do to compete with that at Arista the company's publicity was supplemented by a black firm from Los Angeles a good brother named Bob Brock who I really came to appreciate took every opportunity I gave him to put me somewhere that black folks would see my picture and connect it to my records. It was Brock who set up a tour of the new Johnson Publishing Building in downtown Chicago in 1976. He promised a lot of painless publicity. He probably would have been right if my touring partner had not had a big hit called Love to Love You Baby as redundant a lyric to hit the public sense, amen. A woman led us through the corridors to the small squares cut out of the walls where we would shake hands with mystified employees. She was not impressed. She dutifully tried on a smile that stretched as tight as a drum skin across the bottom of her face. By the fifth or sixth cubicle, she had organized our introductions into a kind of rhythmic mantra she could recite on automatic pilot. Donna Summer, love to love you, baby, Gil Scott Heron, Johannesburg. I didn't think she was going to make it. I didn't think I would. What I got was a whirlwind of revolving doors with thin brown arms attached to dozens of weak handshakes. Sometimes there was a glimpsed, almost a smile on someone's face, but by noon, everybody's handshakes were limp and loose and every smile was mechanical. Occasionally, once or twice on each floor, one of the two photographers on duty would eel his way through a cluster of rubbernecking assistants and jam folks together like flowers in a bouquet and request or demand a smile, then blind us and disappear. This would eventually provide the payoff as a photo of the month in Jet Magazine a couple of pages after some secretary in a swimsuit. It also paid off in another story in another Johnson publication about the miracle on Michigan Avenue, the Johnson building itself, which I must admit was a beautiful, solid piece of architecture that upgraded the downtown area and provided many jobs for young black media aspirants. The building tour was over at half past noon and I got off the elevator on the floor that was marked cafeteria and walked into a thoroughly different aspect of Johnson Publishing. It would be too simple to say it was different from upstairs. I expected the lighter, brighter atmosphere and a hum of conversation between diners. What I could never have anticipated were the two ladies in charge. They ran the line of diners along the rails with personal, down-home, good humor, and an efficiency that would have stood them in good stead with Chrysler or Boeing. They knew who I was and what I'd just been through and added their own special iced tea for loosening up jaws that'd been smiling too much. 
I found a small table for one between the main section of tables and the food line, feeling better and more comfortable by the second. Those ladies had no idea that they had just saved Bob Brock a tremendous cussing out. That was when I saw one of my real heroes, the owner and publisher and one-time sole representative of Soul Magazine's Mr. John Johnson. Here, for me, was a real Chicago celebrity. As a child, when I visited my mother on 68th Street between Wabash and Michigan, the neighborhood had been changing into a magnet for the upwardly mobile and quite a few celebrities and famous faces. I met Cubs pitcher Sad Sam Jones and Olympic hero Jesse Owens, whose feats in Berlin over those two weeks in 1936 were tremendous, winning four gold medals in the House of Racism in front of a 100,000 fanatic followers of a religion of hate who believed him less than human. Haters. That was pressure, and I applaud every reference to his courage and dedication to athletic excellence. But my admiration for Mr. John Johnson was special and personal, not just because I got to see a few lines I might have said paraphrased as the quote of the week from time to time. What I really appreciated was that when Mr. Johnson was probably still working for enough profit to reclaim his mother's furniture, he wrote about my father. Looking at John Johnson, I had that autograph impulse again. The first time I was on both radio and television, I'd had it too. On Ozzy and Ruby's radio show with John Killens and John Williams, I'd wanted autographs. On Joe Franklin's memory lane, I'd had a seat next to Elvin Jones, and I'd wanted to say, Sign this, sir, instead of, Nice to meet you. In the meantime, I'd met Quincy Jones, Miles Davis, Roland Kirk, Chico Hamilton, Gato Barbieri. Man, I'm telling you, I could have had a great collection, but I had tried to get over it. Mr. Johnson strode full of energy, through the cafeteria in his own business, tossing small waves and hellos as he passed. He included me in the waves, and when I stood up, he took a second look, and we stepped toward each other. How are you, son? Scott Heron, isn't it? Yes, sir. I heard you were having a look around. Yes, sir. It's very impressive. I just came through to see if I could get a write-up in ebony like the one you did for my father. That comment brought the publisher's eyes up sharply as he took a closer look at me. Your father? Yes, sir. I cut in trying to joke. Named after me and featured in a nice article you wrote in 47 or 48. Scott Heron, he said, trying to place the name. No, sir. His name was Gil Heron, not Scott Heron. He played soccer for a team here, and you wrote him up. We should go and take a look, he said, looking at my tray. Oh, I'm finished. I couldn't eat another bite. It was a good time to move along. 
I could sense other folks feeling as though they might approach, and I understood why he was setting such a brisk pace across the cafeteria. At the same pace, we moved along toward what Mr. Johnson called the morgue. It wasn't quite that bad. That's one of those publishing words they used to refer to where the history of the publication was kept. In a sub-basement of the building were two huge rooms. One was stacked with file cabinets full of microfilm, and the second was even cooler with actual copies of the magazine lying across rollers in perfect condition. It didn't take him long to find the right light switch and come up with index information that led us to the right aisle and the right roll, and I saw a cover I recognized too late to say anything except, yep, that's it. Whatever strategy might have been used to minimize my curiosity about Gill during my childhood, it had been effective. Any question I asked about him was answered immediately, honestly, and without negative connotations, but only that. There was nothing further. As a result, I knew little beyond that old three-page story in Ebony. Otherwise, I saw only the same half-dozen photos in the family album. There was no real incentive to maintain concern about him, no more than my curiosity about my grandfather or my grandmother's parents. He just wasn't important. So imagine my surprise when I arrived at a place where he was important. It was the beginning of a European tour that would take in seven countries over a three-week span. The dates began and ended in England, but in between, the opening shows in Northern England and the closing five days in London's Jazz Cafe, we had three days in Scotland and then shows in Belgium, Austria, West Germany, Switzerland, and Paris. For the most part, we played medium-sized clubs or mid-sized concert halls. We arrived in England on a Tuesday and were picked up and taken to the hotel. While the band and crew got organized for sound check, I checked my phone messages and ran up an exorbitant phone bill. Hotels in the United States charged by the sentence back then. In Europe, it was by the word. Sometimes I made calls over there and was totally speechless. At other times, I should have been. Two of the messages were from a guy who was promoting the shows in Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Aberdeen, Scotland. His calling me twice wasn't real good news. I called him. I need some help, he said. Edinburgh's okay, but the other two are weak. I need you to do some radio and press. I need you to do two phone interviews tomorrow for weekend editions, and do you have any objection to live TV? I've got to let them know today. Any time afternoon would be good for the phoners, I said. As for the live TV, I can do it, but if they want a song before dark, I'll play and you can sing. My voice is on a vampire schedule, so no appearances during the day. No, no singing, 
but it's a good show for promotion and we'll probably need a lot of things during the day Friday. Okay. I made a train reservation for an early whistle out of Manchester for Glasgow on Friday morning. The band could hold on for the minibus while I got up with the sun and did the rails north. When I arrived in Glasgow, the promoter met me smiling and styling, looking good in a sports jacket and feeling good for a reason. All three shows are sold out. All the press is done. You just need to be there today for Glasgow at five and be ready to talk about football. He meant soccer, the world's football. But why the hell would I need to talk about it? What would I say? Do Cole Porter? I get no kick. He handed me a newspaper. On a page he had marked was a full-page story on me, my music, and my albums. And there was a picture of a young man in a uniform kicking a soccer ball. The Black Arrow said the caption. It was a picture of my father. The most intriguing question on Glasgow at five on the evening of my appearance could have been how could the son of the black arrow not know what a bullseye is but because the promoter had told me to be prepared to talk about a football I was prepared a little bit I knew Pele wasn't spelled P-A-Y-L-A-Y still the more detailed the questions on football they asked me the more likely it would be that their television audience would call in for a DNA test. Huge questions would be raised about my right to be an arrowhead. It was too bad I wasn't a big star who could tell these folks what questions to ask. Too bad this wasn't the old days of television when the phony quiz shows prepared their contestants by giving them the answers in advance. I would have been willing to pause dramatically while some thinking music played. And then, just when it looked as though I was stumped, I would bring on my big 100-watt aha before I gave the right answer. The promoter had told me the combination of elements on this show would be a Scottish orgasm. There would be talk about soccer, nostalgia about soccer, and living evidence that they had never allowed their racism to interfere with soccer. It was just like they'd been telling all the other Europeans. You can carry that racism thing too far, you know. Too far would be if it interfered with soccer, particularly anything that delayed or brought any controversy to how the Scots maintained their interest in the most intense rivalry in sports. Celtic, Glasgow's Catholic team versus Rangers, the team favored by the city's Protestants. I listened in from backstage to the charming and amusing recollections of the team captain of Celtic during my father's tenure. He had been invited in for the show. I don't mean to give you the impression that I was nervous, because I wasn't. And to prove to all of Scotland that they couldn't unnerve me on my way to the TV station, I had stopped by a sporting goods store. 
you don't have to be prepared to understand the rivalry between Celtic and Rangers, but maybe you have to be a little something to come on stage wearing a Celtic scarf and a Rangers hat. I bought them at the sporting goods store. I pretended not to notice the director and cameraman collapsing with laughter. Context of white supremacy. That is the first audio segment. We will pick up on chapter 27 uh, when the second segment begins. Uh, We had a brief glitch. I was pleased. Uh, We had no tech issues. All the streams were working. Things were going great, following along in the book, and we're having work done on the laundry, and they were required to turn the power off in the house uh, briefly while they were getting things corrected on the laundry, and that knocked out my uh, Wi-Fi connection. So that was the brief delay. Uh, my apologies, we got that corrected, and uh, should be uh, should have been fine once we got that taken care of. Uh, But if folks have commentary they would like to share on the first audio segment, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you want to share a few thoughts or if you have questions uh, and you do not want to use your phone, you can use the free HD line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one Uh, when you enter that address look on the left of the page you'll see a link uh, for the free vote line when you click that link it will open a small window on your screen the top line it is a drop-down menu select the number I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in real name, nickname. You can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the program. You should be able to hear us live. It is the same procedure if you would like to participate. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. You'll hear an audio prompt. Press the number one. I'll see your hand on the switchboard, and we will get you on the air. Uh, With that, uh, folks have commentary uh, they would like to share. Feel free. Uh, I guess bonus points, if uh, any of the folks listening in, if you uh, recall the program and or guest 
where we discussed Joan Little uh, on the cows that was mentioned in this week's audio segment. If any folks uh, recall uh, when the Joan Little case was discussed here on the cows, you can share that as well. Uh, folks who have a hand up, uh, launch should be open. Uh, feel free if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Greetings, everyone. Uh, took a lot of notes. Uh, starting with uh, number one, I was just thinking now Now, uh, Mr. Scott Heron is uh, talking about racism uh, in the beginning uh, exclusively and, and, it, and its, its effects on us and how we react uh, to it on ourselves and each other uh, in, the, in the very beginning uh, of the reading. Uh, uh, number two, uh, he mentions about the frustrations of victims attempting to organize to solve the problem of, of racism and white supremacy and how you know they end up, he basically was saying they end up clashing uh, with one another, and, and he chose to to uh, not uh, pick any specific group uh, in favor. In favorite, uh, Peter Green show, uh, uh, especially during the seventies, was probably the most popular show amongst black people in the Washington D.C. Uh, Baltimore, Baltimore area, especially during that time. Uh, number four, I have here a description of blacks who were, I, I, well, I, I would say I recognize his description of blacks who were financially well off participating in the, the what was called the movement uh, only for adventure. I think he used the phrase uh, and uh, used the term just surviving uh, was interesting. Uh, Clive Davis, I have down here a major recording slave master who owned a lot of black musical artists. I mean, some of the very uh, most legendary uh, black musical artists, uh, uh, including uh, Miss Whitney Houston. Uh, moving on, uh, number seven, no, number six, uh, Elton John, as uh, I guess both of us know, a major anti-sexual uh, uh, musical artists uh, still performing today, uh, and he's you know very politically involved with uh, that sort of uh, behavior. Uh, I have down here when he was talking about West 57th Street in the Going Zone. I said I guarantee. I said to myself, guarantee you, uh, on West 57th Street, most of the people. Uh, who he was describing, those lawyers and whatnot, but white people practicing racism. Uh, <laughs> I have that here, number eight. Did you repeat yourself several times uh, in the in the reading? And uh, you you already described on what 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 the issue was. I, I thought it was something wrong with me at first. Uh, uh, then I realized uh, it was something going on. Uh, Bob Marley. Uh, and Reefa <laughs> and Saka, 
I just have not him not surprised <laughs> when he mentioned about uh, the episode uh, uh, with Bob Marley. Uh, also with Bob Marley, because uh, he, he described a a, uh, a wound on his toe, one of his toes, and and I have heard several times that it's suspected that that's where he developed the cancer that ended up killing him. Uh, and and. Once again, one more on, on uh, Mr. Marley. He uh, he loved soccer, and some people say he was a pretty good soccer player. They, they, him and his band members and friends would do it all the time, just playing soccer almost everywhere they went when they had some uh, quote unquote free time. Madison Square Garden, uh, mecca sports and entertainment center, been around for I think over a hundred years. Uh, I'm pretty sure they renovated the building over over that length of time. Uh, being put in categories is always a problem for musical uh, artists uh, uh, that they uh, shy away from uh, to be categorized. And uh, he was speaking; he was giving some sort of description on that on that problem. Uh, Donna Summer uh, huge was huge during the seventies. Uh, uh, I, I uh, rec uh, recall him mentioning about the Johnson Building. I took a tour also through that building in Chicago, I think back in the 80s, something like that. Uh, I thought it was ironic uh, that Ebony, <laughs> Ebony did an article on, on his dad, uh, and, and he uh, basically was able to... Uh, see some of the results of it, and that's basically what I, what I have. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, uh, based on what we were talking about last week on how kind of like complicated uh, his his uh, writing was, it kind of like settled in more to a more uh, simplistic, uh, straightforward uh, uh, context of, of his history, of his Historical biological uh, background uh, a little bit better now this this uh, with this first reading anyway, and that's all I have. Thank you. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, yeah, I was trying to when I rewound, uh, trying to figure out where it left off at. I think I rewound a little bit too far, just trying to make sure I didn't miss any portion. But moving forward, um, other folks who uh, dialed in who. Uh, have a hand up. Uh, line should be open. Feel free. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to the other callers and listeners. <clears throat> I missed part of uh, the retired firefighters' uh, commentary, but uh, so if I repeat some of the things that you know he had covered, I. Uh, I didn't catch it, but I'll start off with <clears throat> uh, Mr. Gil Scott Heron's uh, reaction when he, uh, uh, I guess uh, the guy Dan Henderson had invited Cleve Davis to uh, a show so he could uh, hear him. Uh, Cleve was starting up a new company. And uh, this guy, Dan Henderson, was, he described as salivating and nervous. Uh, 
And this guy is usually, you know, a cool character. But uh, what I was surprised with is I know Cleve Davis was a big name in the uh, music industry at that time and probably, you know, uh, was had been elevated to uh, a small god status. But the way he uh, described him, it was almost like he was, you know, uh, a God. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, regardless to what status that you uh, uh, acquire in life, you still just put your pants on one leg at a time. I mean, the guy, Cleve Davis, there's a lot of rumors, you know, around this guy. And all I can think of is when he left for uh, flying, Dutchman with Bob Beeler and the way he was comparing the two, you know, when you think about these uh, owners of uh, record companies, you know, they are, uh, I would say, uh, not very ethical, you know, and they end up uh, getting you in these contracts that you don't read the fine print and once you sign your name, you may be signing away rights to your music and uh, probably tons of money. So he probably, uh, with his uh, fame increasing and his uh, career on the fast track, uh, his level of victimization probably increased too, along with Cleve Davis. Uh, uh, he, that guy something else. So he was... Uh, a Harvard graduate and uh, a lawyer. So uh, Gil uh, confessed to the fact that he had, he was naive. He said one of his most outstanding liabilities was probably that he was naive. And you can see that Gil, you can see his honesty come through in his, in his work and in his books. <coughs> And, uh, but what surprises you is that his consciousness on what was going on at the time, and then, uh, like most of us, you know, our inability to uh, decipher the system of, of white supremacy. So you would still think that there were still some good white people out there and but he said that when he was inside of those offices he felt out of place sort of like a undercover uh brother or whatever without his cover so he felt you know out of place and he knew that uh they didn't really have his best interest at, at heart it was all about money and it was so odd that bob marley would be inside of his uh, room and you know to think about that today you know you go into your room and there's five guys you know strange guys in your room smoking marijuana you know it just I couldn't uh, phantom you know how his key would end up you know in somebody's hand but it's it's a amusing story and like 
I think the firefighter brought out that that toe that he was mentioning ended up being uh, the spot of the melanoma uh, cancer that ended up killing him, uh, Bob Marley, that is. And um, I want to say that he mentioned, uh, did, he, did he mention meeting uh, one of his uh, children's mothers? Did he mention, uh, let me see. I think that might be in the next uh, oh, okay. next few chapters. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> A little foreshadowing. Okay. And, uh, well, just, you know, Petey Green and how important he was in, in the um, uh, Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I hadn't heard mention of it yet, but... Uh, um, Maybe he was uh, much later on, but uh, uh, the mayor, uh, Marion Berry, was a very popular uh, uh, guy in the Washington, D.C. area. And I thought it was interesting, too, the way he was doing those interviews overseas, having interpreters um, interpret what he was saying, and then he was using street slang and the way he talked. Uh, it was probably difficult to interpret, you know, uh, and it was probably a sideshow. Uh, and it was easy to get things uh, confused. I thought it was uh, interesting that uh, Mr. Johnson, John Johnson, uh, went down into the so-called morgue with him to and looked up uh, his father. Um, he had written about previously and that they had called him the Black Arrow over there. And, you know, this whole thing, someone made a statement about uh, racism, but you can imagine what uh, his father went through uh, playing uh, football overseas. And, um, you know, it's just, I wanted to say something about Bob Marley and his toe. And he was a uh, Rastafarian, and I guess his belief was that they believe that if you take off a part of your body, you know, it's not, you know, pleasing to God or, or something to that effect. But it just shows how far that, you know, religion or some uh, spiritual beliefs can hinder uh, you in ways uh uh, believing in things that, you know, you don't quite uh, fully understand, you know, could be harmful to you. But uh, he did mention also the uh, religion of white supremacy that Jesse Owens uh, had encountered uh, during the Olympics. But uh, I'll mute my line on that. Thanks, Gus, for taking the call. Indeed. Appreciate that, uh, Mr. Dibbery Four. Uh, other folks, uh, if you have commentary, star six, uh, if you have comments you would like to share for the people that uh, are listening in, uh, some of the comments, I guess I could check my email as well. I know we've had people that have written in as well. The amount of money, I thought that was significant. They said uh, the fundraiser that he participated in for the Joan Little Defense Fund, uh, this is uh, $2,300, I believe. This is approximately 1974. So that would be 
a little over $11,000 in 2016 numbers, uh, just to give, you know, some scale uh, for uh, the amount of money that they were able to raise for Miss Little. I uh, didn't hear anyone with a guess as to uh, which program uh, we discussed uh, Joan Little's case on the context of rights or white supremacy. Uh, some of the notes that I took specifically, uh, let's see. Uh, when we got into things that related to politics, a lot of time people would say, man, I'm just interested in cash. And I had to hit people to the fact that if they were interested in money, that was the best reason to get into politics. There was a war going on in this country, and you tried to find your best weapon. I thought that was a great portion because I think there's a lot of that, uh, like right now, 2017, uh, that, you know, I'm not trying to hear anything about, you know, any racism or, you know, anything else, Dr. Welsing or none of that. You know, I'm trying to, to get some money and get some more of it, get lots of it as much as I can. Um, and just not understanding uh, that, you know, that is all a part of the system of racism, white supremacy, which is war, as he stated, war being waged against black people, not just in this quote unquote country, but worldwide. Um, I thought it was a great point he made. He said that uh, back then there were various groups uh, argued back and forth and wasted energy that could have been used to try to do something the community great point i think a lot of that has gone on uh down through the years uh, in trying to solve this problem uh white people the system of white supremacy uh, and he said that he didn't even join any organizations because he felt like if he joined one uh that meant he would be enemies with people that were in different organizations and he just wanted to try to, to work with people who were doing something constructive i think that is outstanding uh, united and dependent uh some might say uh him pointing out that he worked with Shirley Chisholm and just kind of going through the list, the Nation of Islam, different folks that he uh, supported, thought that was great, uh, particularly Joan Little. Um, still didn't hear any guesses. We talked about her specifically, the broadcast with uh, Danielle McGuire, 2011, September 2011. She was on, we talked about her book, At the Dark End of the Street. I think Joan Little takes up, uh, I think it's almost a whole chapter uh, towards the end of the book and, and talking, that's kind of the whole theme of the book is uh, the resistance to the rape of black females by white people. Um, in fact, yeah, that that's the theme of the book. And she puts that one as one of the latter incidents that she mentions, but she talks about Rosa Parks and, you know, she feared being raped by some white guy's house that she was working in. Really important case. And I thought this was really important because uh, he says the little case was a focus of national attention in black papers and magazines. I thought that was really important because I have heard frequently, even from some cows listeners who have called into this very program to take the position that black people do not support black females. When any sort of incident happens, uh, if it's an incident of police brutality or something of that nature, you know, we'll get rowdy for Rodney King or Trayvon Martin, but we don't do that sort of thing for black females when this sort of thing happens to them. And exhibit A, that is not true. Uh, way before Sandra Bland and Ayanna Stanley Jones, it seemed like Joan Little was a household name uh, at that time that a lot of people were focused 
uh, on that case. And that's exactly what Danielle McGuire uh, said, that there are lots of, you know, archival footage and what have you that a lot of people were focused on and, and rooting for her uh, in that case. And you had a lot of black radio hosts like Petey Green, uh, who were a part of that effort. Uh, the importance of black journalists, uh, that was the first thing uh, that came to mind. I know we talked about Petey Green a lot. Uh, on the program and, and his efforts uh, to reveal truth about racism, white supremacy, things that are important to black people, uh, WHUR uh, radio as well. <clears throat> Already said they raised uh, $2,300, uh, him naming kind of given the roll call of different uh, clubs, venues that he enjoyed playing more intimate settings. He has a lot of live recordings. I think he's going to talk about that in the second audio segment, a lot of uh, live recordings where uh, you can hear his responses to the crowd and kind of play back and forth. And I mean, you can just tell that's the environment that he really, really dug performing in. Uh, he kind of ends chapter 23. He says, so he's talking about this case and Russell Means of the American Indian movement, other victims, uh, comparing to white people a little bit, I thought. And then also he says, uh, these cases were all symbols of how America needed to change but had not. He doesn't say white people needed to change. It's America needed to change. Words are very important. Um, moving forward, chapter 24. We're talking about Clive Davis. First thing that came to my mind was Whitney Houston. Anytime I think of Clive Davis, uh, the late, great uh, Whitney Houston, uh, when he says, I came to see how most artists were viewed expendable. I think you could have even added most black artists, but most artists were viewed expendable, easily replaced by others. At the Arista office, I could hear and feel that I was around music people. Uh, and I also, when I thought of this, white people are not ignorant about racism. Like Clive Davis has been around studying and exploiting black people for decades. He is not. He is not. He is not. I am repeating myself now. Ignorant about white supremacy at all. And none of these other white people that are working for him at Arista or any of these other recording labels, they're not ignorant about black people. That's how they make all their money. That's how they take all of our money, studying niggers. That's what they do. Um, let's see, when the Kent, we talked about uh, the substance abuse. Uh, I've been, you know, bringing it up uh, when he talks about being anesthetized by uh, good Colombian weed. I think that's uh, a lot of victims of racism. Uh, go that route. I know Dr. Welsing talked about that. Mr. Fuller, sobriety would be best, uh, in particular when he says uh, that he, he gets the good Colombian weed, and that did not help at all. It's not solving the problem, which is what I would say is, is the critical point of all of this. It's not solving the problem, frequently causing extra problems. And it go back to that incident last week with the car accident. That wasn't cannabis, but it certainly seemed to be uh, that alcohol. I don't know if he was under the influence of alcohol or any of the drugs at the time, but it certainly seemed that alcohol could have, uh, could have played a role uh, in the vehicle crash uh, when he was a young person. Uh, shout out mentioned uh, some of the interviews that he enjoyed. Uh, he, he mentioned uh, Mr. Ozzie Davis, the late uh, and the late Miss Ruby D, who passed in 2014, uh, they both de uh, dedicated a, a sizable portion of their uh, time on the planet to working against racism, white supremacy, uh, and even some of the authors that he mentions, uh, John Oliver Killens, John A. Williams, uh, they were mentioned in The Delectable Negro. These are some of the authors who took part in the response to the degrading uh, depiction of Nat Turner as some sort of crazed 
uh, Homosexual uh, by William Styron. Uh, these are some of the black authors who, you know, wrote their own response saying that they thought this was racist rubbish. Uh, next, let's see, from Chapter 26, Gary Bird. He mentions – he gives a lot of, I feel, shout-outs to black people that, you know, are doing constructive things. I think that's uh, outstanding uh, to when you get a chance to tell your story, like he's sitting down to tell his memoir and to be able to pick out, you know, numbers of different black people that you think are constructive and you want to make sure to give them some due and some credit uh, for what they have done, uh, particularly if they're doing work to try to uh, counter racism. Um, his approach to these interviews I found interesting. Some of this, it seemed almost like not understanding what it means to be white uh, and, you know, just how you want to conduct yourself, especially how you want to use words and, and being very careful in how words are used when you have contact with whites. Uh, when he was saying that sometimes they would have a tape record and he felt he needed one too, great, intelligent, logical, that's how we should be thinking. Uh, when he said it, it would seem like sometimes things would be lost in translation uh, or transcription, that he, I guess, would answer the questions. They would have someone there just to write down everything really quick or type it out really quick, and then he would see the interview and things were wrong. One, white people practice racism. They could have just flat-out lied and deliberately distorted what he said. That has happened lots and lots and lots of times throughout the system of white supremacy. Gus T. has been a victim uh, of that on more than one occasion. So that's one. Two, uh, I think because of that, because the assumption should be that this is not my friend, I'm not going to give them the, the benefit of the doubt. I have an interview with them or what have you, and then they quote me wrong or make up something or just get the information totally incorrect. I just assume that that could be an act of racism. Because of that, I'm not going to go in and be – so careless with the way that I'm talking. He was saying that he didn't know if it was because he was saying a lot of whatevers and a lot of slang and that sort of thing, if, if that was causing some of the confusion or contributing to some of the errors when he did these interviews. That's what I mean about understanding. I'm talking to someone that I suspect could be a racist. I'm going to be razor sharp with the way that I answer questions. I'm going to have my recorder regardless. I'm not going to use a whole lot of slang. I'm going to be very meticulous about the words that I choose to answer these questions, uh, proceeding with this white. Like, that's the mentality that I think more of us need to have uh, because I think that would help minimize some of these problems. When you don't have that, you just end up where it just continues to work out not to your advantage. And it seemed like that's what he reported, continuing to see. He said he didn't even like doing these interviews because would, this would happen consistently. Things would be printed that were incorrect, where they took things out of context or whatever the case. Again, I assert you just go back to number one. This could be that the white people were just practicing racism. You're doing songs like Whitey on the Moon. Oh, yeah, I doubly suspect that they're practicing racism. Um, going back to substance abuse, sobriety would be best. When he says he's doing the interview at the Johnson uh, Publishing Building and the ladies in the cafeteria hooked him up with a special iced tea for loosening up jaws. Again, this, you know, he, uh, Mr. Scott Heron, he has a well-documented, well-publicly documented uh, history of problems with substance abuse. Um, I don't know that uh, if I'm talking crazy and thinking that this could be an iced tea that has some alcohol or liquor in it, maybe you could let me know. I'm making up stuff. I'm letting my imagination get away from me. But that's kind of what this sounds like. And it just that seems like a major uh, the, the bottle. That's why we started with that one. I think that's one of his important songs. I mean, that 
uh, self-anesthetizing uh, as a response to racism, white supremacy ends up being a big problem. It ends up for a lot of us creating a lot more problems and not solving any problems. Proceeding. Um, yeah, I thought it was great when they were talking about his dad. I feel like I've seen that sort of thing before where white people will have like a black person. I was almost kind of thinking like uh, Josephine Baker. Uh, it's not in the sports context, but uh, white people, particularly white people in an area where they don't have a lot of dark people, they will invite a black person to come entertain, amuse them for a period of time. Uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're not racist. You see, we go and watch this nigger perform and kick the ball around. What do you mean? Racist, you know, we're not. We might not, uh, you know, want too many niggers around here, but we're certainly not going to let that mess up our enjoyment of the game, or you know, the play, or the music. You know, if the nigger can play, we want to see the nigger play. Just don't bring too many of them, over, and don't stay too too long after you're done playing. They stand it. I feel like we've seen a lot of that uh, down through the centuries of white supremacy. Uh, I will pause there. Uh, did we have other folks who had commentary they wanted to? make sure they got in. Uh, Emmy, you should be with us. Did you have commentary? Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, I'm. Thank you. Greetings, beautiful people. Um, there were just a couple of things that stuck out to me during um, this session's of the reading, this particular part of the reading. Um, he mentions, I don't actually have the, the text on me, so I can't give exact page numbers, but there's a part where he talks about more people wanting to talk about songs or pieces of his work that um, were not necessarily dealing with black people or were not revolutionary, um, like Daddy Loves You or something like that. So I quickly looked it up and read the lyrics because I had never heard the song before. And... Um, it was very, to me, that is a revealing section of the text um, because I think that it does speak to another ramification or a symptom or a byproduct or an ailment or something like that um, that we're experiencing under the system of white supremacy. I listened to, and I'm forgetting her name right now, but there was a, um, she did an interview with Gus years ago and her, she wrote the book, uh, Whatever Happened to Daddy's Little Girl. And um, I had just listened to that within a couple of days. So to have that be mentioned in the text, and he's saying that there's more people who want to talk about songs like that or even other songs, but they're not the ones that are specifically, you know, speaking about black people. I think that that's still um, very revealing. I think that the problem of fatherlessness and whatnot um, is very long, just as, as long as white supremacy has been around and will get worse and con or continue to um, exist so long as there's a system of white supremacy. So, And then um, I thought it was very interesting as well, uh, the scene with Bob Marley, not just because it was Bob Marley, although I kind of was like, what? I didn't even know they knew each other like that or met or anything like that, but how he describes their their attitude and their way of being, like not even being concerned about if they're in somebody's room or anything like that. Um, and his whole, like, how do I, you know, make them feel welcome, although they already made themselves feel welcome and that whole thing. And I only think, I think that that is a revealing part of the text as well, just because sometimes 
um, when it comes to other non-white victims of white supremacy from other parts of the world, sometimes there's like a, uh, a schism in what people consider to be cultural differences and how things are. And so there's a lot of misinterpretation because there's not a lot of exposure or there's a lot of stereotyping um, that's happening and it's not an open experience of another person from another place, but it's like a judgment. So he could have had a response to that situation in a totally different way, um, but it kind of seemed like I could really envision um, Bob Marley and whoever was with him being kind of just like that. Like, they got a key, like, whatever. He showed up, rolled up, and was like, that's it. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. I could just see them having a very nonchalant, but not really considering it as being any kind of disrespectful thing and it just being this this thing. Um, and then I also appreciated in the text because I remember, uh, I believe it was last week when I participated, I was very curious because there was a lot of, I felt a lot of attention and time to his, not to say that his development is not important, but I didn't actually hear him speaking directly to racism, white supremacy. I mean, he did in this section of the reading. And I was grateful to hear that because I don't know him. I'm not really familiar with his work. I was like, okay. And then I was like, oh, okay. So now he started to perform at all of these you know, um, rallies or conventions or conferences or meetings or gather, you know, like that's how he was, what he was doing. Um, that might just expose my own ignorance. Cause maybe everybody else was like, duh, uh, of course that's what he was doing, but I did not know. So I'm grateful now to be able to understand how he was using his gift and work to um, counter white supremacy. And I'm also grateful because at times, um, and this, this could just be a me thing, um, we're not, I'm not really sure what all needs to be done and how it all needs to happen and all, and whatnot, but, and, you know, how do people use their gifts to, or their talents or their, the thing that they're attracted to or whatever to counter racism. Um, but it's, I appreciate being able to see different, not career paths, but like different callings or vocations that can use their specialty to counter uh, racism and white supremacy. So writing, singing, forming groups, but then you have policy, like being able to see how each person can work in their way. So his, his work is definitely um, showing me that because I feel like now there's just an attraction to being an artist for the lifestyle. And um, so it's a little overplayed at this moment, but I can see then how it was really constructive. Um, and so I think that's all that I have at the moment, but I thank you all for listening. Appreciate that, Emmy, for sure, for sure. Uh, other folks, if you all have any comments you want to get in before we get to the second audio segment, uh, if you already participated, if you have additional comments, that's fine. And then if you uh, are just listening in or what have you, if you have something you want to share, feel free. If you, we have about five minutes before we start audio segment number two. Um, yeah, I don't know. I did I, – I, my thought number one was I thought Gil handled – I mean, I don't know how I would respond if I just came home and Bob Marley was sitting in the residence like, oh, wow. But then another another part of me even thought, like, is that an act of racism? Like, if Gil were a white person, would they have just given Bob Marley and his crew, like, oh, yeah, just take, you know – key and go in there and hang out until uh until we get your until we get your room together like that is uh yeah i don't know i just yeah that was one thing that came to mind and then i also was thinking um sobriety would be best if i am going to be in somebody else's room uh i mean unless they 
didn't tell him unless they, you know, they were thinking that they were going to an empty room. If I'm going to be in somebody else's room, I might want to be alert that they might come in. Uh, some people get upset, even violent about that sort of thing, think it could be a prowler uh, or intruder. Uh, it might be, you know, ready for fisticuffs or anything. Uh, and they didn't seem to budge. Uh, they just, you know, had their mind on, on the herb. So, Another reason, sobriety might be best if it's going to take that much of your attention. Uh, war is being waged against us, as he said in the text this week. Uh, anybody, any other folks have anything they wanted to get in uh, about the first audio segment? My, uh, my quick thoughts on the, on the same subject uh, you, you were talking about, uh, uh, I can almost give an exception to Bob Marley and and the description that he gave with the the the, the uh, cannabis, uh, as far as anybody else, it probably would be a different reaction. But once I found out it was Bob Marley and his and his guys, uh, uh, I mean Bob Bob Marley during that time, as you know, was huge, and and. Uh, Rastafarian, you know, in, in tradition they have with cannabis. Uh, it'd be a situation whereas at least I wouldn't be surprised. It is for <laughs> once I saw that's who it was, you know, as far as that concerned. I I I have been giving that some thought myself. That's it. I wanted to uh, say one last thing. I uh, it was right after the time when they were getting together to do a a benefit. For Joan Little, uh, the sister uh, who had stabbed a prison guard, then at the end, when they were counting up the money, it was $2,300, you know, they had raised for the defense of Miss Little. But he said something really good happened then. Two hustlers, street brothers, who will remain nameless, though they were recognized and answered to fairly descriptive nicknames, came out of their huddle briefly. Each of them had a $100 bill in his hand. And then, you know, he said, just make it a straight 2500 And by him referring to them as like hustlers or street brothers, you know, uh, guys that were just ordinary, well, they were probably living a subcultural type existence, but they still saw the need to uh, contribute to a worthy cause. I mute my line. Great point indeed. I thought that was great also. Um, there's been quite a bit of that uh, down through the years. Even some of our listeners in the U.K. pointed that out, that uh, Detroit Red, uh, Minister Malcolm, was not always uh, Minister Malcolm, Nation of Islam. Uh, but, yeah, I thought that was a great point uh, as well. And, again, uh, just, you know, that is boulder dash. I'm reminded of uh, Dr. Tommy Curry when, you know, people say that. Uh, remember Joan Little, if you hear that again, that, you know, black people don't support uh, black females when they have problems. Uh, number one, you can start with black people in general, children, males, females, elderly, frequently are terrorized by racist man, racist woman, and racist child, and they don't get any attention at all. That's what happens all the time under the system. 
Now, after you get that out of the way, that there have been a lot of black females that absolutely uh, people heard about what happened, were upset about it, and tried to support in every way that they could. Joan Little, great illustration. I'm so glad uh, Gil Scott Heron included reminded us of that incident. Again, you can go back and listen to uh, Danielle McGuire at the dark end of the street. Really important episode uh, in 2011, almost uh, six years ago at this point. And uh, I think the program uh, that Emmy mentioned, uh, whatever happened to Daddy's Little Girl, uh, that was more recent. I think that was 2013. And the author's name, uh, I think I can give that as well. Someone had just mentioned that. I think they said they were having difficulty finding it in the archives and uh, I reposted it to make it easier uh, for folks to to locate the author. Oh, here we go. Is it, oh, <laughs> so details didn't load. All righty. Whatever happened to Daddy's Little Girl program was in 2013, and the author, uh, Janetta Rose Barris. Uh, that's her name. Great program. Great book. Uh, the Impact of Fatherlessness on Black Women. I thought that was a great mention as well by Emmy uh, talking about that was one of the <clears throat> Your Daddy Loves You uh, was one of the songs that people wanted to talk about, not The Revolution Will Be Televised, The Whitey on the Moon. Uh, they wanted to talk about fatherlessness, uh, and that absolutely has been uh, a generational tragedy for black people and whites are most to blame for that, too. Anything else before we get to audio segment number two? Folks satisfied? I will, Everybody says, uh, oh, go, go ahead. No, I just want to briefly uh, mention the fact that uh, he said he had sat down uh, next to Elvis Jones and he wanted to, you know, say, uh, sign this, sir, instead of nice to meet you. In other words, he was still had a bit of, uh, he was humble and some modesty to him to think in, in that manner to want an autograph from uh, a person that, you know, should have been, you know, a peer. But this guy was known as one of the greatest drummers, you know, during that time. I mean, my life. Great characteristic, I would say. He does, uh, that seems to be enduring. Very humble uh, in how he carries himself, how he... Uh, presents himself uh, and you see that in how he relates to others uh, seems like he's he's very uh starstruck uh, and or very appreciative uh, of lots of other people doesn't seem like one of those folks that has to put other people down to to make himself you know look better or be more impressive like that doesn't seem to be him at all uh anything else the folks satisfied I will assume folks are good for now. If you have something else you wanted to add, uh, you can just make a note, and we should have time once the second audio segment concludes. So we are picking up on Chapter 27. This is Gil Scott Heron's The Last Holiday, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number two. 27. I met Lerma Rackley at a club in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., when a friend introduced us. I was enchanted, impressed, captivated, fascinated, all within the first 15 minutes. She was kind, beautiful, warm, 
intelligent, had a lovely smile and a pleasant sense of humor, and she gave you her total attention when she spoke to you. And she got all of my corny jokes. When we'd met, I was still teaching at Federal City College and living in Northern Virginia. She was a journalist living on Georgia Avenue. We'd begun to see each other regularly. My music career was doing quite well, and I was traveling a lot with the Midnight Band, but by 1976, Lerma and I were a recognized pair. We both believed she could not have children, even though I knew she loved children and had wanted a family. But she must have discovered she was pregnant in late August or early September of 1976 without ever telling me, and suddenly I could not get in touch with her and didn't know why. I was confused at first and then upset and a little angry. She could have told me if she had someone else. I decided she would have to get in touch with me. Washington was a major city, but really a small town with a thick grapevine. In mid-1977, I heard that Lerma had given birth to a son. At first, I dismissed the idea as absurd. Then, on accepting it, I concluded that she indeed must have found someone else. And I gave up waiting for a call or explanation or reprieve. I met Brenda Sykes in November of 1977. She came to a show of ours at the Roxy with her former UCLA classmate, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem and I went all the way back to his days at Dykeman Houses, where I worked as a summer gardener. We had also seen each other around various basketball courts in the summer when folks were calling me Little Lou. I had a decent game as a two guard, but two years playing forward at Fieldston at six foot three did my ball handling and jump shot no good. Kareem had told Brenda we were friends and she had asked to go with him to a show next time we played in L.A. We were doing a run of shows at the Roxy and had two that Thursday night. Kareem brought Brenda backstage between them. Naturally, I recognized her. Aside from having seen her in a couple of movies, her picture regularly appeared in black magazines. She honestly looked better in person. She had beautiful eyes and a lovely smile and seemed sincere when she said she had enjoyed the show. They had to leave because Kareem was in training, but I made a point of inviting Brenda back when she could see both shows. Later in the week, she did come back. In December 1978, we decided to get married, and when we were planning the wedding, we had to call Kareem up about the date to be sure he was free. It had to be a day when he had no game, he was in town, and he had time because I wanted him to be my best man. Not long after Brenda and I were married, we decided to have a child, and Gia, our daughter, was a couple of months old when Lerma came by my house on Martha's Road in Alexandria with Rumo. I had never seen the boy, but I didn't need DNA confirmation to know he was my son. He looked exactly like pictures I'd seen of myself on the front porch in Jackson at his age. Lerma had a request. 
I came to ask you not to tell anyone that he's your son, she said, and the expression on her face was so serious that I never hesitated to give my word. I was so stunned at the sight of this pint-sized me running around on stubby little legs in front of my house that I don't really remember if anything else was said. And then they were gone, turning left around the circle that was Martha's Road. The whole event might have lasted three or four minutes, but I stood out front there for a long time reviewing what I had seen, what she had said, and what I had promised. Over the following years, I fell into a pattern even after I left Brenda and Gia on Martha's Road and moved into my own studio apartment. When I was approached and the subject of a son in Virginia was broached, I laughed it off as though the question was a joke, nothing serious, nothing real, nothing I ever gave a legitimate response to. I never mentioned Ramal to anyone. I never talked about him with Brenda. My mother remained a close spirit despite living in New York while I bounced around D.C. and Virginia and eventually headed west, but I never even got close to a discussion with her about her grandson. I rarely went a long time without wondering how Lerma was doing and how my mini-me was coming along, but it would be many years before I found out. 28. One thing Clive Davis pounded into my head from our first meeting at Arista was that any act that wanted to get out of nickel and dime clubs and into major concert halls needed to have an AM radio hit, a single, a top 10 single that made the music directors and radio disc jockeys throw your vinyl on the turntable every two hours or so. A song like The Bottle or The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. In 1978, we got that kind of play with Angel Dust. And because of that tune, we found ourselves featured as the second act on a three-act R&B get-together with Lakeside and Rose Royce at the Centroplex in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Centroplex was located near the campus of Louisiana State University. The huge, sprawling institution was the size of a small city and practically guaranteed a sellout for major concert acts. At about 4 p.m. that afternoon, we sauntered into the near-empty auditorium and made our way to the dressing rooms. That is, all except Kegleg, whom we left with the house bumpers, the guys who were there to lift equipment onto the 12-foot-high stage on a hydraulic lift. I never had officially determined the exact spelling for the name I'd given the head of my road crew. I suppose it was two words, kegleg, rather than kegleg. It might have become moot after everyone, including his mother and his wife, cut it down to keg. Whatever the spelling, he was my man. One of my unofficial titles with the Midnight Band might have been Dispenser of Nicknames. It was a labor of love, something I did automatically at times, 
primarily for the humor. It was a habit I'd picked up at Lincoln where almost everyone was known by a nickname, so much so that when the person's real name was needed, a lot of folks drew a blank. As a freshman, when I'd run for class president and the names of those elected were posted, several upperclassmen wondered what happened to Spider-Man when they read that Gil Heron had been elected. On my floor in the dormitory, I had a hawk, a taboo, a butterball, and a bird, and I had established a number of handles for members of the Midnight Band as well. Barnett Williams was the doctor. Charlie Sanders was Cosmic Charlie, and Brian Jackson was Stickman. Along with Kegleg, those were my most successful as they extended beyond their associations with the group. At the Centroplex that afternoon, I forget what occupied my thoughts for that first hour or so, but I do remember looking up and seeing Keg making his way toward me. Boss, he whispered in his own hoarse way, how bad do we need this gig? It was so direct and off the wall that I didn't speak right away. I am not easy to surprise. I admit that I am no Uncle Buddy with a nod and a polite thank you with a bee stinger in my eye, but I am not one to give you a frozen-faced grimace and silent scream if the unexpected shows up either. I had seen one of our percussionists come out of a darkened bathroom after starting to brush his teeth with Preparation H. I had seen the expression on a D.C. executive's face after he mistook a solid piece of Colombian cocaine for a throat lozenge and popped it into his mouth. In fact, speaking of cocaine, I had been in a living room in southeast D.C. when a brother in too much of a hurry tried to pour a half ounce of powder through a wet strainer. Kegleg, with his barrel-shaped body, set solidly on legs that were as sturdy looking as rolling logs, constantly left me with a smile or a head shaking with disbelief. He was one of the most definite Aries I had ever met, but I am positive that the spontaneous way he responded to circumstances had never been predetermined by the proclivities of his astrological placement. The things he said and the moves he made automatically prepared me, but I was not ready for... How bad do we need this gig? Well, uh, we need them all. I managed quietly, but not if it's a situation we can't handle. I continued vaguely. Thank you, boss. Whatever response he was looking for, must have been hidden in what I had answered because without further syllables he turned his hat around backward and headed back out the door with all of us trailing in a ragged line behind him. His destination was definite and direct. Striding with as much speed as his short legs would manage he left the dressing room and headed straight down the center aisle toward the stage. Standing in the center of the stage, directing the four-man Rose Royce road crew, was one of the largest brothers 
I had ever seen outside of a wrestling ring. He was a good half a foot over six feet and had left 350 pounds far behind. Kegleg was headed straight for him. He started up with what for him was a scream. Listen, you big... I didn't catch the last word. First, I'm kicking your ass and the rest of y'all get online. He couldn't have brought much more shock to that stage if he had started speaking the Gettysburg address. With the conclusion of the announcement, Keg stepped directly to the giant road boss, placed his huge head into the center of the man's chest, and started to back him across the stage. Yo, yo, the big brother called out, taking another quick step back. What the hell? Keg was adamant. I told you when them humpers started packing they stuff. I told you when you made them put my stuff back down on the floor. That's what the hell they in here for. I had everything on stage and you made them take it down. Screw you. I ain't lifting that shit back up here. I'm kicking your ass, you some bitch, and then everybody who don't like it. Wait up, hold it. It was all the big man could do to look around Keg at the rest of his men. AJ, he called to one. I want you guys to put their stuff back up here. Just put us in the corner there and then put their things up here for him. Keg looked back at the rest of the crew. Without enthusiasm, they were nodding and looking over the edge of the rear of the stage where all of our drums and keyboards and cables sat in a pile where they'd been set after Big Man made the humpers take them down. Keg was still fuming as he stepped away, but his anger had melted away. It was like watching air let out of a scaled-down brown bulldozer. His anger had filled his chest and made him seem larger and fiercer. Soon, as we all stood and watched the Rose Royce crew working our stuff over the edge and up the stairs to the workspace, Keg was himself again, joking and speculating on what had happened to Lakeside. The Dayton, Ohio group had been scheduled to open the show and word had it we might have to play first because they were running well late. Them snakes and gators out there in the swamp got them, Keg told us. They know when it's city folks and don't know where the hell they going. They put up detour signs and lead them right down there to the dinner table. I don't remember anybody ever speaking about Keg's challenge to that man and a half at the Centroplex. Hell, in Starkville, Mississippi, he reached out of the bus window with a pipe in his hand and smacked the hell out of a gas station attendant who insisted on filling our bus with a cigarette in his mouth. Keg was the type of Aries they write about in the astrology books, the kind who will come across a problem and start working on it. Rams rarely came down from the mountaintops just to start trouble, but there's nothing in the neighborhood up there among those impossible footholds, so 
if you're up there, they'll ram the hell out of you. I'd realized that about Keg since the day I met him. There were a dozen of us waiting in front of the Charisma office on Georgia Avenue in Northwest Washington. I had purchased a new carry van for our equipment and my road manager, Tom Abney, sent Kegleg to pick it up. At nearly closing time, we stood out front waiting to see the truck with its sunroof and burglar discouraging metal grill across the back. It didn't take long before we spotted it rolling toward us. The driver, still in shadows, pulled past us and put himself in position to parallel park. Not so fast, brother man. Before he could back into the spot, a nearly new Mercedes-Benz turned out of traffic and pulled into the parking space head-on. We could all see the triumphant driver, a hurrying African, dressed for business in a white shirt, striped tie, and suit jacket. The Benz driver opened his door a crack and began fumbling with his keys and an attache case in the shotgun seat. Then the door slammed shut again on the driver's side of the Benz, the street side. That was when I got my first look at my new roadman, Dennis Little, the nephew of the Charisma boss, Norris Little, who had asked me to hire him. It struck me immediately. The brother, about five foot seven, looked like nothing so much as a huge barrel set solidly on plow-pulling thighs. He now planted himself against the Benz driver's door. I am here first, the driver responded, rolling down his window to protest. I have this space. I have this space. I am here first. Yeah, you got that space, said Dennis casually. But you can't get out of the car. I don't know what I expected to hear the brother say, but whatever it was, that wasn't it. If I had been reviewing a list of possible lines with only that line on it, I would have had trouble picking it. Of course, it was perfect. But the African hadn't picked it either. He rolled the window up with the quickness. He looked at the imposing bulk that blocked his exit to the left and then stared out at us through the passenger window. We all stood there motionless, speechless. He rolled the window down again. I am here first. Then he realized that this was ground that had been covered. With a shrug of dejection, he put his key back into the ignition and started back up. Dennis without a further word, backed off and let the Mercedes pull out. With that, he backed the van in perfectly, hopped out, pushed the door closed, and flipped the keys to me as he passed the sidewalk cluster. Nice ride, boss. I really like the sunroof. And from that day on, he had been Kegleg. 
1929. The next time I played Madison Square Garden was in September 1979, four years after the Arista celebration. I was working with the quintet of Carl Cornwell, Ed Brady, Rob Gordon, and Tony Green. There was a week-long series of concerts being held by Muse, the Musicians United for Safe Energy, a group formed by Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Jesse Colin Young, and some others after the incident at Three Mile Island Nuclear Plant in March of that year. I hadn't had a lot of time to get myself together for that one because we had only been invited about two weeks in advance of the event. The shows started at 7.30 each night because there were a bunch of different artists playing. We were scheduled to play second behind Peter Tosh. Not. Because when hit time arrived, Peter refused to go on and somebody from the group of musicians who were running things was standing halfway down the twisting ramp under the arena waving frantically at our limo driver as we pulled up. If the first act wouldn't or couldn't go on, everybody moved up. The organizer asked whether we could go on first. Hell, we could play at four in the afternoon. A documentary film about the event called No Nukes came out later and we appeared in it doing something from our set. If we looked a little disheveled, and I managed to do that pretty often, that time it was because we went from the limo to the stage. No problem. Well, there was one problem. The night before, when Shaka Khan came out to play, the youngsters from New Jersey were hollering for their man, Bruce. They started the call every time the house lights went down. But Miss Khan didn't know about the traditional call. She thought they were booing and left the stage. I was introduced to the house by Brown, and before I could remark to myself on his being another Jackson, I was hearing the same calls for Bruce that had sent my Chicago sister back behind the curtains. Those yells came rolling down over me from the darkness of the upper section of the stands like giant waves as the five of us, not Springsteen, emerged from the shadows behind a truckload of instruments and equipment. At the time, I wasn't aware of what had happened the night before, but I heard what they were saying and I knew who was backstage. So I gave them a good evening and told them that Bruce would be with them later and that I'd appreciate it if they let me do my little bit since I was already out there and had a band with me. No problem. They either figured, what the hell, or were too drunk to know I wasn't Bruce because they calmed down and let me do my three songs. We opened with South Carolina, slowed it down a touch with We Almost Lost Detroit, and closed with the bottle. I guess I noticed all of the film and recording equipment all over the apron, but I honestly hadn't given much thought about making the cut that would give me space on the vinyl or in the film. That was a bonus. I was working at T-O-N-T-O -T -O Studio in those days. 
Malcolm Cecil's Santa Monica facility near the beach and when I got a call from California about being mixed for the release Muse was producing I told them to go to Malcolm. I was in New York at my mother's house when I got another call this time saying Jackson Brown was catching a Friday night red-eye flight from LA and would need my signature on a paper when he landed. I gave him my mother's address, she was up on 106th Street at that point, and said I'd see him there. It was raining and gray in Manhattan that Saturday morning. My mother was standing near the window cleaning up some breakfast dishes when she spotted a limousine cruising to a stop in front of her building. Odds were it was Jackson based on how many limos we used to see at Franklin Plaza. I joined her at the window and sure enough a tall thin dude with dark hair hopped out of the back seat and trotted through the sprinkles to our front door and we buzzed him in. He looked like he had been forced to stand up all the way from LA but he landed in a New York frame of mind one step behind the world. Didn't matter. My mother wouldn't let him leave. You start to feel New York on the pilot's approach to your runway. When the plane straightens out after the final wide turn and you plunge through the clouds and find yourself eye level with the skyscrapers across the river, there's an immediate jolt of adrenaline that brings your body up to city time. With apologies to San Francisco and the beautiful skyline that causes folks from there to call their town the city, I have never felt my arms and legs energized and my pulse rate rise in the Bay Area the way it does when I'm in New York City. And people always remind themselves not to be city slicked by fast-talking New Yorkers who give you five minutes worth of information in 30 seconds and charge you for an hour every 15 minutes. It's so much of a lifestyle that it has broken down to life without style. Even well-meaning folks can be misunderstood by visitors, stunned and mystified by a life speed the locals clearly consider the usual. Sometimes the visitors are determined not to let New York interfere with their visit, to let nothing deter them from their business. Jackson Brown came into my mother's apartment, locked on leaving, on getting to where he was going. But my mother was as firm as she was friendly, and I had to listen to the tape before I could approve it anyway. While I looked around for the cassette player, she was guiding him to the table. Come and sit down, you poor thing. It will only take a minute and you've got to have something to eat. Jackson reluctantly sat down and relaxed, maybe for the first time in hours. I listened to the tape. It was an abridged version of Detroit smoothly shortened to fit the producer's request that it not exceed three and a half minutes. I was okay with whatever, recognizing the recognition of my participation that would come with being included on the album and film. Hearing the song, 
I was reminded of how that whole evening had gone and how much I had enjoyed seeing folks from the music community working together and trying to do something positive. That will wrap us up uh, for this week's uh, segment. Context of White Supremacy will be back next week. Uh, I think we have two sessions and we will be all done. We'll start next week. We'll be on chapter 30. And at the rate that we've been going, we should be out of here. Um, Two and done. And uh, I think I said... mm, I think it was on the compensatory call-in last week. I said I think we should do Franz Fanon. He's come up so many times. He's been mentioned by so many different uh, authors, guests uh, that we've covered over the years. We should go ahead and do one of his books. Wretched of the Earth, Black Skin, White Mask. Uh, Wretched of the Earth is longer. Um, Yeah, I've read Black Skin, White Mask. I've read some of Wretched of the Earth. But we should pick one of those. I guess listeners can kind of take a vote on which one you'd rather pick up uh, or lodge your protest if you would prefer to do something totally different other than that the number 641-715-3640 code 564-943-POUND press star 6 if you would like to participate Folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, uh, my uh, note content uh, did go down considerably. Uh, but uh, here it is anyway. Uh, the first uh, thing I jotted down uh, was uh, his relationship with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, he uh, mentioned um, a couple of times before about his uh, basketball abilities himself. Uh, I didn't know he was that tall. I'm talking about Gil Scott Heron right now. I think he mentioned something about 6'3", something like that. Was, was I correct on that? I think that's in the ballpark. Okay, yeah, I didn't know he was that tall. Uh, but anyway, uh, well, we know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was tall. <laughs> but uh, another thing about uh, Kareem that is uh, uh, relevant to uh uh, this read is he was a very huge, he had a very huge jazz collection uh, that was destroyed uh, in a house fire uh, that took place. And I think uh, some uh, uh, people uh, kind of like donated uh, some, uh, some uh, uh, replacements uh, for that, uh, in time. Uh, but anyway, moving on, uh, he mentioned about nicknames and I will concur during that time. Nicknames were very popular. Uh, I could say in the sixties and the seventies and especially on, uh, college campuses, uh, to whereas, uh, 
a lot of cases you you either forget or did, don't even know the person's real name uh, because their their nickname was so was so popular. Uh, the there, there's there's kind of like a a science behind it, uh, and what I notice about it when when non-white people do it is actually uh, from from my experiences is it's the the nickname becomes someone's uh, physical impediment. Uh, uh, the nickname would would derive from some sort of physical impediment they have. If if they have heavy uh, glasses, you know, they would be called. Uh, I had a cousin by the name of they nicknamed him Jack Bland because he had his glasses was was uh, those real thick glasses and whatnot, and, and he always had them on. But uh, there was another guy who had uh, big eyes without bugging his eyes. He had big eyes. He's called him Marble Eye, but. Just examples. It would be based on some sort of impediment that was noticed by a lot of people. Uh, certainly, a lot of uh, uh, people uh, who were heavily melanated had nicknames. Spook was one of them. That a guy that I grew up with. You know, it goes on and on and on and on. And I would say, to the point where some of that wasn't wasn't very constructive at all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, another uh, Bob Marley associate was mentioned in the last re- in the, in this past reading, Peter Tosh. Uh, I wrote down there uh, because his name was very significant, and he became uh, pretty uh, proficient as a artist himself. Uh, and uh, that's basically that's all I have for right now. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you have any commentary on the second audio segment? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir, Mr. Demery Four. Okay, yes. Um, in 27, uh, he had met uh, Luma Rackley at a club in Georgetown. Uh, I think that, you know, from looking at this, you know, relationship because uh, Theo was saying before that he didn't have a life. You know, his other band members in the Midnight Band had families, but he didn't. I guess he was just like a single guy or rolling, you know, type dude. And uh, he met her. I think they fell in love. And then it's kind of confusing because. Uh, in the end, she got pregnant, and he said that, you know, he was angry because he thought she had found someone else, and he just decided that she would have to get in touch with him. And then his life, you know, which we we got so-called families, you know, or attempted families, you know, where you attempt to um you know, have some unit, but because of his uh, occupation and um, I guess, and because uh, uh, Miss uh, Rakeley, you know, wanted it that way, you know, because she came to him and told him, you know, that don't tell anybody that the guy's, you know, his son, you know, you got to be kind of confused about that. Like what's, 
you know, what is uh, generating this type of thought pattern? But then that's probably just another stressor he had to deal with. And then he's uh, he meets uh, Brenda Skype, and you know, within a year later, he's they're married and they got a child. And now he just hears, you know, uh, rumors, you know, coming from D.C. Like, you know, his son, he has a son now and all this other stuff. You know, it's just goes to show you that, you know, our lives are, you know, shattered. You know, uh, can't have a, a decent, uh, you know, relationship, a family type relationship. And then uh, the last thing, this guy. Kegleg or whatever. It seems like he's got some issues going on where, you know, he can really get after, you know, another black person, a non-white, and that seems to amuse Gil. And so that that's his road manager, the guy that helps him set everything up. But, um, and last, this... Uh, Musicians united for safe energy or whatever, you know, and they invited him there. You know, they got all these white uh, entertainers, James Taylor, Bonnie Rafe, Jackson Brown. And he's there. You know, that's awkward. And he's got to pick the songs that he wants to sing. I think that that was important that he opened with South Carolina. And then he said, slow down a touch with, we almost lost Detroit and closed with the bottle. You know, and I think that that performance, you know, boosted uh, his recognition because I think they uh, invited him to be on an album and, and probably uh, some film or a movie part later on. I'll mute my line on that. Thanks, guys. Indeed, Mr. Demery Four. Uh we have any other folks who had commentary they wanted to share? Have you heard? Yes, ma'am. I'm probably low. Is this am I clear? You are crystal. Okay, thank you. Um I agree with Mr. Demery Four about the uh, the child. Um I was thinking about it and I feel perhaps maybe like well, in terms of him writing his autobiography, I'm a little disappointed because I feel that that is something that he just kind of talks, he mentions it because I feel like he has to mention it, but not to have any cathartic experience with it or divulge anything about it or really open anything up, which then makes me question, did he really write it for his children, which he said at the beginning of the text, because I feel like, I well, Maybe he and that son have had, you know, extensive conversations about why he wasn't there and what happened and everything like that. But if they hadn't, and this is what the son has, it's very scant. Um, and I don't I think it's incorrect. I don't think it gives enough to a child. Um, but in terms of then I thought about, you know, well, like I would want to know a little bit more about this female um, that he had his first child with this woman that he had his first child with because that does seem very strange if um, you're with someone and you think that you can't get pregnant and then you end up pregnant, but then you run away. I don't know. It seems, mind you all, that I did just listen to the um, 
the what ha- whatever happened to Daddy's Little Girl uh, broadcast, so that is very fresh in my mind. And so I'm like, maybe she's running, maybe she's dealing with fatherlessness, and then she got pregnant and it triggered something in her. That was something that was talked about in that broadcast. Um, it'd be great to uh, have her back on the show, too. I'll just say that. But um, so I was like, maybe she's dealing with her own case of fatherlessness and, I don't know, some kind of psychological thing happened when she got pregnant. But then I still don't understand why – oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm driving and someone just did something so dangerous. But um, wondering why she wouldn't want her son to know um, or why she doesn't want anyone to know that that's his son. Excuse me, y'all, for the momentary brain fart. But why she wouldn't want anyone to know. Like, maybe Gil's not really sharing the extent of his issue. Maybe he has a name in the community or something like that. Like, what would be so wrong with him acknowledging his son? And then I feel like when it comes to the two parents that they're not considering the child, I'm not so sure, like, why does the child have to be a toddler? And then you show up and be like, yeah, he's yours, but don't tell nobody. That just seems very dramatic, very uh, confused, um, and it just seems like I like that child suffered a lot, um, and so it would have been great to uh, have a little bit more information about that. But anyway, moving on, and then I um, the thing I forgot to mention about Bob Marley is it appears that perhaps like I know that whole job will fix it and job cure and everything like that, but uh, perhaps it's theatrophobia. Um, you know, the fear of dealing with, you know, Western medicine. Um, And I know there's, like, some things to that. I won't get into it because I really don't know enough about it to really speak on it. But in reading medical medical apartheid, I do think that his uh, refusal to, you know, get that taken care of so that he could live, even if he has children and everything, um, could just be a severe form of viatrophobia. Um, and I think, oh, and then the last thing I wanted to mention is um, I'm out here in the DMV, Virginia area. I'm on the Virginia side. And uh, he mentioned that a lot about being able to think. Well, he didn't mention it a lot. He mentioned it, and then it got played a lot. But anyway, I think it's a good point that he can think in Virginia and be creative in Virginia, but he had to be in New York so that he could do what he needed to do. But I myself, when I go to New York, feel that way. I've never flown to New York. I, you know, I, I ain't got it like that. I just catch the bus, but I feel the exact same way when I cross that bridge and I'm going through all the tunnels and stuff. Like, uh, yeah, you do get brought up to speed real quick um, and you can feel the difference. So I can understand why his creative spirit might have wanted to really be on the quieter, calmer side of things in Virginia where you can sit outside and drink a cup of tea and write your next song. But I just wanted to say that I do think that that's something for those, the differentiation in environment. Sometimes, you know, when you're constantly living in that fast paced thing, you're not really realizing the uh, effect it's having on your ability to create or think and all that. But, uh, all right. Thank you all for listening. Oh, and I um, I vote for Wretched of Years. I have Wretched of Years, and I've always wanted to read Wretched of Years. So um, I am definitely putting in my vote for Wretched of Years. I'm down for whatever. I'll be here for whatever, but Wretched of Years is what I want. One more for Wretched of the Earth. Got it. Um, uh, if other folks have commentary, you should go ahead and get your hand up. Please don't wait till the last five minutes to decide that you have comments you would like to share on the text. 
uh, some of the things that stood out. Yeah, I thought I think in general for his autobiography, particularly since we only have two sessions left, uh, we are, you know, very close to the conclusion. We've read about 75 percent of the book. Uh, I felt like a lot of different areas, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. And I mean, certainly you have editors. This book was published uh, posthumously. It was published a year after his death. Uh, The book came out in 2012. So uh, that could be an influence. Uh, You know, if this was a manuscript, uh, a lot of times uh, it takes years uh, for books to be written and finally published after you go through all the different edits and, you know, white people get their grubby mitts on to decide, you know, what has to be changed and what have you. So, who knows? But I definitely think there are a lot of portions where it just seems like there's very scant detail uh, about them trafficking arms, apparently, where that just seems to come up out of the blue. Uh, the child situation uh, definitely would have been nice to get more information. I mean, the all the information about that thus far is just in one chapter that's 13 pages. I mean, maybe even a little shorter than 13 pages. So, yeah, I agree. Not... Not a whole lot of information uh, on this, kind of the abbreviated life story of life and times of Gil Scott Heron. Um, let's see. The father fatherlessness, absolutely. That would be two generations uh, with Gil's father being out playing soccer and not around. And he's even, I guess, maybe even got a double whammy, even though he did have access to his uh, grandmother uh, and Sissy Scott as well, but I mean his direct mom not being around for a number of years either. Uh, but that generational uh, absence of black parents, black fathers, black mothers, big time uh, damage that that has done uh, to black people. Um, let's see. It seems like uh, even substance abuse. I talked about it before, but it just seems like from some of the things that he shares that he was around a lot of people who had substance abuse issues. Uh, even when he uh, is talking about this incident where he said, uh, I'd seen the expression on a DC executive's face after he mistook a solid piece of Colombian cocaine for a throat lozenge and popped it into his mouth. In fact, speaking of cocaine, <laughs> I had been in the living room in Southeast DC when a brother in too much of a hurry tried to pour a half ounce of powder through a wet strainer. That's what I, it just seems like he's been around uh, a lot of substances, drugs, people doing drugs. Just seems like he's got a lot of different instances and times in his life uh, that relate to drugs. Like he starts this, this whole thing talking about uh, seeing people being surprised about things. He starts all this by saying that he's not surprised. And so he's giving other examples when people were surprised and consecutive. It's like he had so many examples of people being surprised that related to drugs that, you know, we got two uh, in here. Um, Let's see. Uh, I I agree. The assessment of keg leg. Uh, I don't think he would have behaved in this manner if this had been, uh, a white person uh, who had, I guess, put their equipment up or, or frustrated him in the process of getting the stage together. Uh, maybe some anti-blackness uh, going on. And with the naming, too, the nicknames uh, as well, that's been my experience that that can get very 
uh, ugly because uh, a lot of times these nicknames are not names that the person is like, oh, yeah, I want to be called kick leg or I want to be called blind jack. Like I have rarely seen that be the case. A lot of times it is with tremendous opposition uh, that they uh, just end up being resigned, that they're going to be stuck with these uh, labels uh, for life. Sometimes that's been that's been my observation. Uh, I also thought the scene where he talks about uh, this, I guess, random black person, African, he says, who uh, pulls up with a nice vehicle and I guess steals uh, their parking spot. And he makes the guy move. Uh, I guess this is another one with uh, with keg leg. You know, hey, you, 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 you're not going to be able to get out of your vehicle. You stole our spot and, you know, it's going to be trouble unless you move along. And he does. That's another one where I kind of give a, a head scratch. You know, would they have done this if this had been a white person pulling up in a Mercedes uh, or, you know, a Hyundai, <laughs> this, you know, pulling up, took their spot where they have behaved in the same manner. Like, you know, you're going to, you're going to beat it. We're not even going to let you out of your vehicle. Uh, if you're, you know, try to come in here and swipe our parking spot like that. Um, let's see from 29. Uh, I have, we have not really heard very much. I meant to get that in like last week. I think I forgot, but getting it in from this week, since we're even further along in the book again, we only have two sessions left. I think we've read 75% of a book called the last holiday. And we really haven't heard a whole lot about Dr. King, uh, or, you know, the effort to get the holiday, like that is not really the central theme of the book. Uh, we even, you know, going through the sixties, didn't even really get a whole lot at that time about, you know, Dr. King's death. And I mean, if it didn't have a big impact on him at that time, then, you know, right on, it's truthful to the book, but just, I did think that was a significant observation. There's not a whole lot of attention really, uh, in what we've read thus far to Dr. King, the holiday, um, Let's see. I thought the the whole event uh, around nuclear arms, uh, it also does not surprise me that for something like this, that is not directly about racism and particularly particularly at this time period when there was so much activity and black people protesting all over the world directly about racism that he could get attention and get on an album and, and do some heavyweight promoting for himself and his band uh, by doing this with, I think it was Mr. Demery said getting a lot of major uh, white artists from that time period. And they're talking about, you know, clean energy and nuclear arms and, oh, this is a problem. We got, I mean, white people consistently, they'll get real or at least pretend that they're real serious uh, about that when it comes to, hey, let's stop terrorizing black people. Oh, I got yeah, I don't know. We got other things to do. We got some cocaine to store. They come up with a thousand uh, different excuses. Again, I'm not, you know, no problem. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to do uh, as an artist, victim of racism. Uh, I thought uh, Shaka Khan that might have been uh, tremendous black self-respect uh, for her to just leave uh, if they're going to be shouting out, even if she didn't know. Let's let's take it for what it is. She didn't know that they were calling out Bruce. She thought they were booing or whatever it was. And you know, I'm not going to waste my time if they're just going to sit here and boo great black self-respect if she did know that that's what it was and she left hey if you're going to be yelling out for some white man uh while i'm trying to perform hey you all can you know have it no problem go get bruce and let him do it black self-respect i'm not going to tolerate any sort uh of you know tomfoolery uh <clears throat> and rowdiness while i'm trying to perform right on i thought two thumbs up for shaka khan 
Uh, and I also thought it was great United Independent the way that he dealt with it, knowing that they were yelling uh, Bruce and you come out, smooth the crowd over and then you go ahead and do your uh, performance. Um, I think I will I will pause there. Uh, I can I can agree. I have been to I guess my last comment I've been to. I lived in the Bay Area. I've been to New York. I've been to a lot of uh, the bigger cities. And I would definitely say, yeah, New York, it's it's a significant difference. Uh, the times that when you enter New York City, uh, the feeling, uh, the atmosphere, the energy that you feel in the city, it's it's unlike any any of the other cities that I've been to big cities, uh, not San Francisco, no place, no place else that I've been to uh, on the planet thus far. Uh, anybody else comments they wanted to get in before we uh, get ready to conclude? Uh, thanks for the patience uh, with the tech issues. Anything else they wanted to get in before we conclude? Yes, I, I uh, uh, I'm in agreement with uh, everybody on their comments that was made on uh, Bob Bob Marley's uh, reluctance. Uh, for uh, medical treatment, although uh, when uh, the cancer was really uh, working against his uh, his health, uh, he started receiving medical treatment, and he actually passed away right down here in South Florida in a hospital not too far from where I'm sitting at right now. Uh, and uh, with something else, oh, uh, either book is is uh, a good read. It actually is a learning. Uh, uh, both books are very, uh, uh, very much a learning uh, type of uh, text. And uh, I probably would say Wretched of the Earth out of the two. I've, I've just about forgotten a lot of stuff that was in both both of the books. So. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, making that study again. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of something else. Uh, that's it. Okay. Two votes for Wretched of the Earth. Duly noted. Uh, anything else folks wanted to make sure they get in uh, before last few minutes before we conclude? Well, one other thing is when he had Jackson uh, Brown to meet him at his his mother's place and the way that she reacted and responded to him coming, you know, offering him something that he needed to have him set down, you know, served, I guess, as a uh, distraction, you know, where he could uh, kind of survey the situation, and, you know, because the guy was sounded like he was just going to be in and out. And when you're in a deal like that, you know, you have to be cautious when somebody just wants, they gave you a heads up. Somebody's coming to see you, need your signature. And he just pops in, you sign and he's gone. You know, that's sound like a setup to me, but I, I'll mute my line. Hmm. If I may add, I think I had said before, I think someone even emailed me about this book. They were saying they were saying stickball because that was mentioned before. And they were saying that they grew up, I think, in New York and that they used to play 
uh, stickball. And I think they said that they did agree that that is, you know, going to sound pretty cavemanish uh, in about 10 years or so if it doesn't already. That whole exchange, somebody having to get on a flight to bring you a piece of paper to sign, and then they give you a cassette tape that you listen to, like, wow, that <laughs> is like super caveman. Uh, like, I would suspect if it's not the case already, within about 10 years, you're probably going to have a, I'd say at least half of the people who read the book are going to be like a cassette. What? What what are you even uh what are you even talking about? I've never even seen such a thing. Um yeah, like that extra super uh caveman in particular when you think about what he said about the uh calibration on cassettes, like if you listen to it, uh if it was playing via batteries or if it was uh plugged into an outlet, uh it would play faster uh and it would sound different from the way that it was actually recorded. Now you can contrast that to all of the, you know, HD technology and everything uh that everybody has now. I mean just wow. Uh the technology from uh what is that? 40 years is amazing. The technological uh leap just in 40 years. Uh whew, just imagine I say it's going to be a, another such leap uh just in the next 10 years, but that is another another conversation. Uh everybody Everybody uh, good? Anything else they need to get in? I'll assume folks are all satisfied. Uh, Again, we have two sessions left. So if you have any thoughts, uh, I guess, tying everything together, uh, major themes that have stood out from the book, uh, if you want to be thinking of those over the next two weeks uh, as we get ready to wrap up this book and move on to something it's been all related uh we shall see uh which book it is wretched of the earth black skin white mask anywho we'll be here tomorrow for the compensatory call in 9 p.m eastern 6 p.m pacific tune in uh if you have comments uh thoughts on things that have happened over the past seven days counter racist suggestions uh again 9 p.m eastern 6 p.m pacific uh the infamous crystal tyler suspected race soldier she should be with us uh this coming monday she was with us uh, a couple times before uh she wrote the book the wheat money she's married to a black male uh a black male that she described as a crack addict she met him he was a crack addict she allowed him to stay uh basically in a shed on her property in the colorado area and she does like a whole history of their families under the system of racism white supremacy to explain how racism white terrorism how that helps show the logic it helps you understand how after three or four generations he is a crack addict in Colorado she is a white woman uh, who gets a check just from property that her family has owned where she doesn't have to do anything she just gets a check in the mail every year for thousands of dollars uh, and she'll get this check, you know, for the rest of her life. She can even pass it on to her uh, children. Uh, and she just looked at this black crackhead and said, oh, yes, I would. I want his genetics. That's what she said on the program back in 2014. She came to everyone's attention or people who were listening to the program. She came to some folks attention because she was down in Ferguson talking about racism and her book and you know, Michelle Alexander tells it like it is and that sort of thing. She should be back with us this coming Monday. We'll be a hoot to have her on the program. If you have uh, questions, gripes, complaints, uh, guest suggestions, until justice at gmail.com. 
untiljustice at gmail.com. Many thanks uh, for everyone tuning into the broadcast. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, we'll be back in about 24 hours. Man, oh man, based on everything we've heard from Gil Scott Heron this week and throughout the first uh, three quarters of the book, sobriety would be best. Uh, I don't know if he talks explicitly about uh, his substance abuse, personal substance abuse issues during the last uh, portion of the book, but I mean, it's it's pretty well documented and it certainly has come up enough in the book uh, just different uh, people, references to, man, cocaine, <laughs> reefer, alcohol. We've had a variety of, of different uh, substances mentioned. And the most important thing of all, none of those substances have helped black people solve the problem, racism, white supremacy. In fact, all of these substances, I don't know if they contributed to that car crash from last week or not, but I can say that they these substances being high and drunk and whatever else it is, uh, being intoxicated has ended up putting a lot of black people in greater confinement and or saddled them with a lot of unnecessary problems because they were not sober. I think Mr. Heron included, Scott Heron included, excuse me. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.